Amen, amen. Hey, have you guys got your Bibles? Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. It's hard to believe, but we are going to finish this book today. Uh, this has been our summer series, and it is coming to a close about two weeks after summer, but that's okay. Uh, we are going to finish this book today. In the first half of this letter, uh, just to remind you, we covered in essence our identity in Christ, our identity in, G- in Jesus, who we were outside of Jesus, and who we are now in Jesus. And it has everything to do with who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And in the second half of the book, we have transitioned to really focus on what it means to live in that new identity, to live out that salvation, to live as people, as he says in chapters 4, verse 1, to live as people worthy of the calling to which we have been called, to live as children of light. So we are to live light in anything and in everything. It's why I strongly want to create a culture here at FBC or to continue fostering a culture in which we are living light in community, in small gatherings, in large gatherings, living light in ministry, in missions, living light in anything and in everything we do, what we're about, and so on and so forth. Which means, as we've seen over the last few weeks, if we are to live light, then we must live unity. We have to live as one. Oneness. The two have become one. Doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. Doesn't mean there's going to be uniformity, but it does mean that we must live unity as one. We also must live responsibility. Each one of us has been given a gift, and we are to use that gift to serve the body of Jesus, to encourage the body of Jesus, to build up the body of Jesus. We have a responsibility to the body of Jesus. We're also to live purity in how we think, in how we act, in how we react, in what we watch, in what we listen to, in our relationships. Purity in our bodies, purity at work, purity in the neighborhood and in the community. We are to live purity. And as we spend over these last couple of weeks, we are to live humility. Each one of us is to, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to look to each other's interests and needs, even above our own. We're to literally lay down our lives for one another. We're to live humility. And today I want us to see that we must live with intensity. We must live with intensity. For a moment, I want to take you to Huntington, West Virginia. Huntington, West Virginia. This beautiful community on the Ohio River is home to 80,000 residents. It's also home to Marshall University. And on November 14th, 1970, most of you will know, and many of you have seen the movie, but everything changed for Marshall University on November 14th, 1970. It changed everything for Marshall University and the beloved community. 
on that day, the Marshall University football team had been playing at East Carolina University where they lost the football game 17-14. to A close battle, a back-and-forth affair, a beautiful game. Afterward, they board the plane to go home. 37 football players, coaches, doctors, even the athletic director, 25 team boosters boarded that plane. They began their journey home, but two miles from the Tri-State Airport in Canova, West Virginia, the plane crashed in a hillside. All 75 passengers were killed instantly upon impact. One Huntington citizen said the whole fabric, the entire heart of the town, was aboard that plane. Huntington obviously went into mourning. Shops, government offices, they closed. Businesses on the town's main street, they covered their windows in dark drapes. Classes were canceled. There were so many funerals that they were spread out over several weeks. The town, the people, were sitting in ruin. They were sitting in ashes, wondering, how can we move forward? Today, I want to talk about Satan again. We talked about him a few weeks ago. As we've already seen in this series, the evil one is the most powerful and influential being in this world. He is the adversary, the one who opposes, the slanderer, he's the accuser. He is, as Jesus would say, the father of lies, who utilizes his native language to pray, to come after the cravings of our flesh, to take advantage of the world arena so as to steal, kill, and destroy on a micro level, on an individual level, and on a macro level, a community level, a culture level. He and those who belong to him, they seek to drive us into ruin, to drive us into ashes, seeking to destroy the entire fabric and heart of our very selves, Bringing us to wonder, how can we even move forward? What I want to reiterate today is what we talked about weeks ago, that we are at war. You can't hide from it. As one author said, you were born into a world at war. This war is relentless because our enemy is relentless. As Peter would say, he's constantly prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour Think of it like this. We know the story of the Wizard of Oz. Famous story, famous movie, Dorothy, Toto, Kansas, the tornado. Familiar images in our minds. Well, what happens is Dorothy and Toto, they find themselves in the land of Oz, a land not their home, and they embark on a journey along the yellow brick road, onward to the Emerald City in their quest to return home. They bring with them along the way these familiar faces, the scarecrow, the tin man, the cowardly lion. But at every turn and in every way, there is someone trying to stop them who is against them. 
the Wicked Witch of the West, her green face and all. She does everything in her power to prevent them from succeeding. She's relentless until the very bitter end, wanting to drive them into ruin, to drive them into ashes, to the point where they wonder among themselves, how can we even move forward? And you and I are like Dorothy along the yellow brick road. We're on our way home, so to speak. And we hope to bring some, many with us, but there's an enemy seeking to do everything in his power to prevent us from succeeding, to prevent us from fulfilling our God-given task and calling and everything in, of the sort. One who wants to keep us from living light in anything and in everything. He's seeking to drive us into ruin, into ashes, to, again, destroy the whole fabric and heart of our very selves. He's trying to keep us trapped, asking the question, how can we even move forward? And Scripture's clear, he's against us. When we enter the realm of marriage, he's against us. When we enter the realm of family, he's against us. When you enter your workplace tomorrow or this afternoon, he's against us. When you go out into the community, he's against us. When you go out into the country, he's against us. And especially among the church and in the church, he is against us. There is an enemy. Literally, this is not hyperbole. There is an enemy at war against us. He's against us. He is against us. Every day, every hour, every minute, every second. He's crafty. He's powerful. He's intelligent, he's knowledgeable, he's experienced, and he's seeking to create an environment in which he can utilize the world, the culture, our flesh to devour and to destroy. As the famous Warren Wiersbe said, Satan wants to use our external enemy, the world, and our internal enemy, the flesh, to defeat us. His weapons and battle plans are formidable. And you and I, we look around at the state of everything, the spiritual state of the times, education, politics, culture, even our own families for some of us. And we can't help but wonder, in such turmoil and ruin and ashes, how can we move forward among all this? We might feel like those sitting among rubble or the rubble after this Hurricane Ian, thinking, how can I move forward? The question is, is what do we do? Paul answers that question. We get ready. This is our response to it all. We get ready. We must not run. We must not hide. But we must get dressed for war and stand. Stand firm, firm in the faith, firm in our marriages, firm in our families, firm in our communities, firm in our culture and in our homes and in the church, firm in the faith. We get dressed for war and we stand. Now, I'm not talking about physical war. Paul's not talking about physical war. Our battle, our war, Paul makes very clear, is against a spiritual realm, an unseen realm of darkness all around us. And at the end of this letter, 
Paul is acknowledging this war in a huge way. I'm reminded of my senior year in high school. We were playing football. I was on the football team. And we had a decent team, and we were playing Tahlequah, I think. And at the time, they were a much lesser opponent than we were. And so we traveled to Tahlequah, and we were expected to just run away with this game, right? About like TCU did with OU yesterday, right? This is kind of the expectation for us. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, the expectation was we were a much better opponent. We are going to run away with it. And we played terrible the first half. We were lethargic. We were missing plays. It was just bad. Our minds weren't in it. Our hearts weren't in it. So we go into the locker room, tied to Tahlequah, and it was quiet. Nobody was talking. You could hear the click clacking of the, the cleats on the ground and everything, and, and pads moving and, and jostling around, but there was no talking. Nothing. And then the coaches come in, and they're not talking. And then the head coach comes in, the head football coach. And I'll never forget it. We're all just sitting there. And he picks up this chair. And you know he planned this from like off season. He picks up this chair and just slams it against the lockers. Just threw it as hard as he could against that lockers. I'm hopefully he made sure that nobody's around, but he just slammed it. And immediately we all just like woke up. And he proceeded to give like this incredible halftime speech. Like something like made up of a movie or something. Like this is that moment. He just gave this incredible halftime speech. And we went out of that locker room and just destroyed our opponent in the second half. This speech that we're about to read is Paul throwing a chair against the lockers. And saying, wake up. Quit being lethargic, quit going through the motions, quit being indifferent, quit feeling defeated, quit complaining and bickering and mumbling in the ashes, get ready, put on, take up, suit up, be strong, we're at war, so let's go. What we're about to read is Paul's halftime speech, as one commentator said, it's the type of speech with which a general would hearten his troops before they go into battle. And this is what Paul writes. Finally, to conclude it all, finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, not part of it, but all of it, so that you may be able to or have the capability to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So again, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of 
given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith so that you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, wake up, be on guard, be ready with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. So the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, which we've already covered in this series, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul's in prison. So that I may declare it all the more boldly as I ought to speak. In his grand speech, Paul's objective is to declare a few things here. Number one, there's an enemy. Paul's making that very, very clear. There is an unseen enemy. You have an opponent. You have someone who is against you. That's why I underlined that word against so many times in this text. Against, against, against. You have an opponent on the field with you. And this adversary is like Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots back in the day. He doesn't care if he's breaking any rules. He's studying everything about you. He wants to know your moves, your tendencies, your weaknesses, your strengths. And he knows how to find holes. He knows how to find the cracks. He knows how to find the loophole. He's like a nasty rat, and you know how I feel about them. He wants to get into your house and make a nest and destroy, completely unseen. And this adversary, Paul says, has schemes. He's organized. He's intelligent and intentional. As one commentator says, he's intelligent and intentional on derailing, subverting, and overturning God's purposes for you in Christ Jesus. He holds no punches. He doesn't care if you're 10, 50, or 95. He could care less your emotional state, your physical state. He holds no punches. He's coming after you. And he's coming after the church. He doesn't care how he must do it. He will seek to destroy, devour, and divide. To drive us into ruin and into ashes. Getting us to sit there and wonder, how can we move forward? There's an unseen enemy. Number two, the ultimate struggle you have is against this unseen enemy. Your ultimate battle Ultimately, what it comes down to is against this unseen enemy. The beef, the conflict you might have with your spouse, your kids, that coworker, that brother or sister in Christ. What Paul is saying, what he's not doing, he's not justifying anything or excusing anything or trying to get us to say, oh, well, the devil made me do that. That's not what he's saying. What he's trying to say is that that tension and conflict and division, what you see going on in the world, what's really going on is something much bigger and deeper and unseen. There's something behind the curtains that's really going on. So that person that you keep talking about and gossiping about and going after, that's not your true opponent. That's not the ultimate person you're wrestling against. 
The one you're wrestling against is the one on the mat with you, the one on the field with you, the one in the ring with you. It's this unseen enemy. And these spiritual, evil, dark forces, they're unseen, but they are presently at work in our lives, in this world, in every way. He's the one you're ultimately going up against. He is against you. And here's the fantastic good news for you and I. This opponent is stronger than us. He's more powerful than us. He's craftier than us. You say, well, that sounds like terrible news. That's not good news. We can't stop him. But someone else can. And someone else has. And that person has the authority, the power, and the control over everything, even the unseen dark forces. And that person is, and only is, Jesus. As he declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what do we do? What is our response to this unseen enemy, this raging war? How do we move forward? Well, Paul tells us. He says, number one, be strong in the Lord. Stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What is Paul getting at? The word that he uses for strength means his power or means a power to rule or to control. In other words, he's saying is be strong in God's power to rule and to control. And the word that he uses for might means capability. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, you and I don't have the power, we don't have the authority, and we don't have the capability to conquer the enemy, to withstand the temptation without Jesus. Because he's the one who has the power to rule, to control, and has the capability. As Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. So don't try and do it by yourself. Quit trying to save your marriage by yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it in your own power, your own authority, your own capability, because it won't work. You don't have what it takes. Noah has a, uh, a few remote-controlled toys at home. He's got a couple remote-controlled cars, a few remote-controlled trains. Thank you for those of you who know who you are. And these toys are great. If they have the handheld controller, it doesn't matter what the car or the train can do, how impressive the car or the train is, without that controller, it's powerless. It can't do anything. Jesus is the controller. You are powerless without him. You can't withstand the attacks of the enemy. Your flesh is too weak. You can't overcome those attacks, those flaming darts that he's throwing at you. You can't be offensive against the opponent without Jesus. Your marriage, your family, your school, your office, this church is powerless without Jesus. We don't stand a chance. If we are not strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, we are going to get hurt or worse. Here's the thing, though. Not just as individuals, but collectively as a whole. These commands that Paul is writing are in the plural form. They're written to the church. You and I need each other. We're to do this together with each other. 
The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. Dorothy needed her friends to withstand the enemy. In the same way that Frodo needed his friends to combat his opponents. In the same way a football team needs each other to move the ball across the goal line. In the same way you and I need each other to withstand this beast lurking constantly in the shadows of the unseen worlds. If we live thinking, oh, I can do this all by myself. I got what it takes. I know enough. You will get picked off. Or you're getting picked off right now. You just don't even know it. It either is happening or will happen. You can't go along the yellow brick road by yourself. It doesn't work. Without getting seriously hurt. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. His power, His authority, His capability. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God. It's a beautiful imagery. It's a picture of a soldier getting dressed for war, specifically a Roman soldier. This is the picture. A soldier, he says, get dressed for war. Now, what does this really come down to? He mentions truth and righteousness and the gospel and being ready and and faith and the word. What does ultimately this come down to? If I could condense what Paul is getting at here, it's this. Know the truth. Believe the truth. Live the truth and proclaim the truth. This is how you put on the full armor of God. Know the truth. Know the word of God. Read it. Study it. Wrestle with it. Meditate on it day and night. Know the word of God. Know who Jesus is. Know what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Know the truth. And believe it. Don't just know it for knowledge's sake. Truly believe it. Believe the word of God. Believe Jesus and live it. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Live light. We've been talking about this. Live the truth. Follow the way of Jesus. Live the way of Jesus and proclaim it. Go and make disciples of all nations. Proclaim to everybody and everyone the truth. This is how you get dressed for war. Be strong in this. Do it together. Stand firm in it. This is how you go to war with an unseen enemy like the devil. And then finally he says, pray. Now we're going to do a series on prayer here in the coming weeks. But quite frankly, we don't pray enough. And some of us don't pray at all. And it's a sign of many things. But one of those things is that Deep down inside, we subconsciously just think we don't need God. No, I have the capability. No, I have the authority. No, I have the power. This is what we do. But here's some breaking news for us. No, we don't. You don't have the power. You don't have the authority. You don't have the capability. Only Jesus does. And even thinking that we can do it ourselves means we don't know our opponent and we fail to appreciate the power, the authority, and the work of Jesus. You know, after the transfiguration of Jesus there on the mountain, Jesus comes down with Peter, James, and John, and they approach this scene. And it's this father 
who's debating with the disciples, and there's a crowd around them, there's this great debate going on, there's emotions are high, and people are angry and upset, this dad is upset, and they're just trying to figure out what's going on. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, like, what's going on? And this father comes to Jesus and basically says, listen, this is my son, he's filled, or filled with this demon, and this is what the demon's been doing, and I came to your disciples to try to cast the demon out, and they couldn't do it. So Jesus casts the demon out, it's this incredible miracle, But then afterwards, the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, why couldn't we do it? Because here's what's fascinating about it. They had done it before. They'd gone out on their little missionary journeys to do these type things already. So why couldn't they do it this time? Well, in essence, Jesus tells them, you don't have the capability. You don't have the authority. You don't have the control or the power to do it. And you forgot about that. Only I do. And so if you're going to have any chance against this enemy, you better pray. And you better be strong in me, in my strength, and in my might. You better know the truth. You better believe the truth. You better live the truth. You better proclaim the truth. And you had better pray together, collectively. I have brought up D-Day a couple of times in this series This incredible moment during World War II in which the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, Operation Overlord in June of 1944. This moment in which 160,000 Allied troops made their way across the English Channel, landing along a 50-mile stretch of beach to begin the liberation of Europe from Nazi Germany. Thousands of ships and aircraft would support the troops who were landing on the beaches. Thousands of those whom would be killed or wounded. Of course, we know the end of the story. This began a movement in which Nazi Germany eventually would be defeated and Europe liberated. But there was a veteran from that day. A D-Day veteran whose name is Frank DeVita. He says he'll never forget how tough it was to be the man in charge of dropping the ramp as his landing craft approached Omaha Beach. This is why I chose this image. As these boats would come up, Frank DeVito was the one in charge of letting go down that ramp, that little wall there, protecting them from the enemy. Frank DeVito was barely 19 at the time. He said this ramp, it was our shield, as long as it was up. He said, as we approached the shoreline where the water hits the sand, the machine guns were hitting the front of the boat. He said it was like a typewriter. He said when he was ordered to drop the ramp, he just paused. You could imagine. How can I move forward? He said, I figured in my mind when I dropped that ramp, the bullets that are hitting the ramp are going to come into the boat. So I froze. In such ruin and such ash, how can I move forward? But then again, his commanding officer yelled at him again to lower the ramp. And so Frank DeVita followed the order. He dropped the ramp. 
He said the first seven, eight, nine, ten guys went down like you were cutting down wheat. He said they were kids. And to be honest with you, I can't imagine. Most of us in this room can't imagine. The majority of those walking the streets of the United States can't imagine. And what amazes me, and something we should never take for granted, is those soldiers knew there was an opponent. And they knew who that enemy was, even though they'd never seen the enemy with their own eyes. They knew what was at stake if they did not get ready and go to war. And what did they do? They stood strong together, collectively, and they went to battle, no matter the cost. Russell Moore said, the signs of the times tell us we are in for days that our parents and grandparents never knew. But that's no call for panic or surrender or outrage. Jesus is alive. So let's act like it. Let's follow him onward to the future. Our world, in a few places, seems good. We woke up to beautiful weather this morning. But in so many places, it just seems ready to boil over. And quite frankly, even here in our own communities, families, work environments, churches, marriages, schools, it's like we're just teetering. The water ready to boil. And you and I must know that we cannot fulfill the purpose that God has given us. We cannot live light in this time, in this cultural climate, in this age, in this moment of history, unless we know there is an enemy. And unless we know who that enemy is, the one who we truly wrestle with, unless we know what's at stake, and unless we prepare and get ready for war, together, collectively, as one unit, living with intensity, standing firm, strong, in his power and might and capability, knowing the truth, believing the truth, living the truth, proclaiming the truth, and praying always. I'll close with this. Going back to Huntington, West Virginia, after the crash, there were many thoughts on closing Marshall football. The thundering herd hadn't had a winning season in years, and this tragedy just was too much. What's the point? Why move forward? But then came this unknown coach named Jack Lingle, a man who helped change that team, that town. And if you've seen the movie, there's a scene at the gravesite where some of the members of the crash had been buried. The fire from the wreck was so severe that the bodies of these six players were never identified and they were buried in this common gravesite. And in the movie, the team is there together. And it's game day. The first home game of the new season and the first home game since the crash. But the new team, they gather there at the graveyard first. And Jack Lingle steps up and says, over these gravesites, six players, six teammates, six sons of Marshall. This is our past, gentlemen. 
This is where we have been. This is how we got here. This is who we are. These, this is the ruin, the ashes. And then he transitions and says, today I want to talk about our opponent this afternoon. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. And they know it too. He said, but I want to tell you something that they don't know. They don't know your heart. I do. I've seen it. You've shown it to me. You've shown this coaching staff, your teammates. You've shown yourselves just exactly who you are in here. And he says, when you take that field today, you've got to lay that heart on the line, men, from the soles of your feet with every ounce of blood you've got in your body. Lay it on the line until the final whistle blows. And if you do that, if you stand firm, you get ready, you go to war, if you would do that, we cannot lose. How you play today from this moment on is how you will be remembered. This is your opportunity to rise from these ashes and grab glory. The Thundering Herd would win two games that year, one of those being that home game. In Jack Lingle's four years with the team, they would only win nine games. That would be the definition of not a very successful career. But they had victory because they took the field in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the darkness, in spite of the ruin. In spite of the ashes, they moved forward. And they went to battle, they went to war, and they carried on. And in 1984, Marshall finished 6-5. and five, Won 6, lost 5. It was the first winning season in 20 years. They just kept getting better and better. And in 1996, 26 years after the crash, they went 15-0 and and won the Division I AA title. As the movie says, out of the ashes, they rose. I don't know what the coming days hold for you and I. We could speculate. War is messy, it's dark, it's dirty, it's unpredictable. But Jesus has risen. And that changes everything. So get ready for war. Prepare for your opponent. Be aware of your opponent. And be strong, not in your power, not in your authority, not in your capability, but in Jesus' power, in Jesus' authority, in Jesus' capability. Know the truth. Believe the truth. Live the truth. Proclaim the truth. And pray always. And you may face imprisonment, as Paul did. You may suffer. You may lose your job. You may lose your house. You may lose that estate. You may even die. But know this, that one day out of the ashes you will rise because that's exactly what Jesus did. So as Paul concludes the last verses of this chapter, he says, Peace be to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those of us who love our Lord Jesus Christ, despite it all, with love incorruptible. 
with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite you to respond. By not taking an attitude of defeat or disposition of indifference or apathy, despite what you might be going through, despite what you're seeing on the news, despite what you're facing in politics or education or at work. But I'm going to invite us collectively together before the Lord to get ready. come back before the Lord together and rest in his strength and in his might in his power in his authority in his capability to not just know the fact that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth but to believe it that he has all authority in heaven and on earth yes you're facing an enemy But Jesus is bigger. Jesus is still in control. Jesus still has the authority. He still has the power. And one day he will call you from those ashes, from that grave, saying, arise. Know the end of the story. And in the meantime, lay down that ramp together and go to war. Collectively, let us come together in his strength and in his power and get ready. Father, we come to you. We thank you for the life, the work, the ministry, the message of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that yet while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That by this we know what love is. That he gave his life for us. He pierced, crushed for us. And Lord, we know that you did not leave him in the grave. That you did not leave him in the ashes. But you raised Jesus with immortality, raised imperishable raised in honor and glory he sits at the right hand of you in complete control with complete authority and power with complete capability Lord in a way the war is over though we still battle though we still every day approach Omaha Beach in our marriage, in our families, at work, with our sons and daughters, granddaughters, great-granddaughters and grandsons. So let us get ready. Let us know our opponent. Let us put on the full armor. May we know the truth. May we believe it. May we live it. May we proclaim it. And may we pray in all circumstances, at all times and in everything, for one another, for ourselves. And may the peace that surpasses all understanding rule our hearts and our minds, knowing the war is coming to a close. 
Together, Lord, let us be strong in you and stand firm. In Christ's name I pray. I'm going to ask that you stand with us. During this time of invitation, I'm going to be down here. If you say, hey, I need, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Or, hey, I need to get baptized. Or, hey, I want to join the church. Hey, I just need prayer. Hey, I just want to talk. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do in this time.